Good morning, Christ Chapel. How are you? Good, good. Uh, excited to be and honored to be and humbled to be in this pulpit. We're going to be in God's Word today. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. That's page 920 if you've got the, the Pew Bible. Real quick, I want to uh, make an announcement to, to not just this room, but everyone online and the other campuses. Uh, an elder announcement is just something to put in front of you so um, everyone is in the loop this Sunday and for the next three Sundays, you're going to find a QR code uh, in the back of your sermon notes here. And, and that QR code is going to take you to a full list of elders and deacon nominations on our website. Uh, the list has been unanimously approved uh, by the elder board. Uh, there you're also going to find the constitutional requirements for leadership here at Christ Chapel and of the elders and, and the deacons and leadership positions. Uh, if you'd prefer this information a hard copy, so you can really be prayerfully considering and, and lifting up uh, these men and, and, and praying through it. Uh, we can do that at the kiosks at each of the campus. We can give you one of those to pray over. Uh, there's two gentlemen on the ballot also for the office of elder. Uh, one of them is Drew Robbins, who is a current elder and is willing to serve now a second term. Uh, and also Mike O'Neill is a new elder candidate this year. Uh, and additionally, if you're, a, if you're a member, if you're a constitutional member of Christ Chapel, you're going to be receiving a voting link at the end of this month so you can cast your vote uh, prior to our annual church meeting. That's scheduled for August 27th, okay? So we want to put that in front of you. We want to be a church that communicates well to our members and so that um, we're transparent with all of those things. Um, like I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. So 920 is the page we're on. And, and in today's um, passage, we're going to see the church get squeezed. We're going to see persecution, which we've seen in Acts so far in some ways. We're going to see persecution come, and we're going to see the church get squeezed. And when they get squeezed, we're going to see prayer emerge from the church. And then with that prayer, we're going to see God show up in some pretty uh, amazing ways. Um, I think this concept of being squeezed, right, of facing trials, of going through hard things in our life, really that can be very subjective or objective. It's, there's a spectrum there. I actually Googled um, you know, disappointments, you know, just what are common disappointments. You guys would be amazed at how many people talk about socks in their disappointments, Right, like they step in a puddle of water in their sock in their kitchen and their day is ruined or they get a hole in their sock. And it was honestly a little unsettling how obsessed people, maybe that's you, maybe I'm the weird one. Um, my, my son, he just turned seven, my youngest. Uh, for him, if you, if you ask him about persecution, I bet anything I know what he would say. He would talk about how his mom and dad make him wear torture pants. And here's what torture pants are. Any pants... Any pants for my seven-year-old, the dead of winter, right, which lasts seven or eight days around here, the dead of winter, going to church, mom and dad say, put on your pants, Miles, and it's torture. We literally name any, any kind of fabric that crosses past his knees is torture pants, and it's miserable for him, um, hoping he'll grow out of that eventually, um, praying, praying for that. You guys can join me uh, in that. <clears throat> Right. Suffering, though, um, you know, that's funny and subjective in a lot of ways. Hopefully that doesn't stay the case for miles. Um, we, we have all kinds of objective ways that you are suffering, that you have suffered, that you have been squeezed, or even this morning that you feel squeezed, that you've got a burdened heart for somebody in your life who is feeling the tension and the pressure or the loneliness or, or, or all kinds of different circumstances in our life which weigh us down, which become trials. That's what we're going to talk about. What happens when we're squeezed? What does prayer look like? And what does prayer look like that really, um, that really moves God to act in miraculous ways? Chapter 12, verse 1, 
Let's look at the first five verses. This is what our author Luke records. He says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, so here's what's happening. James is one of the three disciples. This James who's, who's killed at the beginning of chapter 12 is one of the, those three disciples who were uh, oftentimes considered one of the three closest disciples to Jesus, right? He had his 12, but then it was James and John and Peter who, were, who just seemed like they were always right there in that inner circle. They're killed by Herod, and that's Herod Agrippa I. It's not the Herod who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, um, but Herod, he sees the Jews are pleased by this. He thinks, wow, okay, so killing Killing James got me all of these, these points with the Jews, and, and so he's addicted to affirmation. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go kill Peter also. He arrests him. It's in the days of the unleavened bread, which is a, a, a feast that leads up to Passover. And so it's these Jewish holidays. He had to wait it out. So he takes Peter, puts him in a prison. Four squads of guards are guarding him. Herod's plan is to bring him out to the people, meaning He's going to bring him out. He's going to have him executed. The people are going to cheer, and he's going to get the glory. The church is squeezed. I mean, one of, one of the most faithful leaders of the church in James is killed. Now, Peter is in prison, uh, potentially about to be killed. And what does the church do? Verse 5. So Peter's kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Right? They prayed. And even that word, earnest, Right? Ektenos is the Greek word there that's used, and Luke uses it one other time. So our author in Acts uses it one other time, and he uses that ektenos word, he uses it in Luke 22 when he's talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he prays earnestly, in, in anxiety, as he's sweating blood, right? That's the other time this word earnest is used, and it really has this, uh, this thick meaning. It's kind of got this two-sided coin definition. One of them is it's continuous, Right? There was a prayer without ceasing. There was a continuousness to this prayer gathering, to this meeting. They were going before the Lord. God, would you intervene? Would you save? Would you save Peter? But also there's this ferventness, right? There was this, there was this zeal and boldness to their prayers, right? These are, these are desperate prayers, right? They're, they're praying people who are squeezed and it's producing dependent people and dependent prayers that's what difficult circumstances often do for us. Difficult circumstances produce these dependent prayers. God, I need you. These dependent prayers come, come out when we're squeezed. When things are bad, when things are hard, when our, when our back is up against the wall, so often that's when our prayer life notches, notches up. Right? And, and even in my life, I'm convicted. I've been convicted a whole week as I study this and as I get to submit my life to this text. So often, that's not my first instinct. My first instinct so often, even as a pastor, is not to pray. I, oftentimes, we treat, I treat prayer as this seasoning. Right? A, a problem emerges and I think, I've got to fix it. I've got to get in there. I've got to resolve the problem. And then, and then I'll season it with prayer after I've resolved the problem. But, but God's word says, man, prayer is the main dish. It is, it is the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. And we use it as, oh, let's throw some prayer over this thing that really we, we're trying to, to, to muster up the power to change. 
Um, and prayer isn't exclusive to our times. It shouldn't be. My um, hope, as I've been convicted uh, this week, is that as we study this, uh, it'll leave us more stirred for the priority of prayer. Look what happens, though. When God's people pray, look what happens. Their dependency, they're praying earnestly. And then verses 6 through, six through 10 here. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and two centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Come on! This is amazing! Right? This, is, this is a miracle, right? I mean, Peter is arrested the night before he's supposed to be, I mean, it's the night before, the next day he's going to be paraded in front of the Jewish people. The apostle Peter is about to be killed. God's people are desperate. They're earnest. They're continual. And, and there's, there's, there's a zeal to their praying. God shows up. He sends an angel. He intervenes. He says, I'm not, I'm not through. I don't know if he froze time. I don't know if it's an invisibility cloak. Right? I just know that God is sovereign and powerful and said, said, I have more story to tell my glory through Peter. Right? He thinks it's a vision. He gets outside the prison cell, doors, they're opening, poof, the angel disappears. God is powerful. God is in control. He is sovereign. There is power in praying to a sovereign God. We see that story here and time and time again in Scripture, the God who controls all. That's who we go to prayer dependently to. And our dependent prayers reveal God's power. That's what happens. Right? When we pray, when, when God's people dependently pray, it reveals God's power. It happens throughout Scripture, right? God's people pray and God responds to those prayers with miracles and power. In 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah is sick, right? Hezekiah is sick. The Isaiah, pro, the Isaiah the prophet goes to Hezekiah and says, I have a word from the Lord and it's that you don't have much more to live, so get your house in order. And Hezekiah in, in Kings 20, he, 1 Kings 20, he turns to the Lord immediately and he says, God, don't forget me. God, would you prolong my days? And before Isaiah even can leave the palace, God has a new prophecy for Isaiah and says, hey, actually, I've answered his prayers and, and we're going to give him another, I'm going to give him another 15 years of life. Right? I mean, God answers prayers. First Samuel, right? We, we see Hannah, who's barren. She can't have a child. She goes, she prays before the Lord. The Lord sees her, hears her. She gives birth and is blessed by giving birth to, to Samuel. God is powerful. He moves as a response to our prayers. And look at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, so he's outside and all of a sudden he realizes the angel's gone. He comes to himself. He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Right? Peter, he gives God the just glory. That's what's happening here in this story, right? Now I am sure, right, as he'd seen before, as he'd see time and time again, there was no doubt this was, this was God's doing in his life. And so Peter gets to testify to God's power, 
He gets to testify God's power is always greater than my prison cells, than my circumstances, than my chains. God's power is always greater than our difficult circumstances. We see that as a truth of Scripture. That the power of our God is greater than the circumstances or the power of this world. And by greater power, meaning more powerful, right, than what the world has to offer. And there's this tendency at time, I, times, I think, where, where we almost see God and the powers of the world as this yin and yang battle for balance. That God is like wrestling with Satan in this spiritual realm. But we don't see God struggling at all with, with Satan anywhere in Scripture. Right In the Old Testament, in Exodus, when, when God chooses to set the captives free, uh, the Israelites free out of, out of Egypt, um, he sends the plagues, and it's not a, it's not a wrestling match. Right? It's, it's a one-sided domination by God. Um, when God shows his power on Mount Carmel uh, through, through his prophet, Elijah, Right? Elijah shows up representing God, and there are 450 prophets of Baal, this, this pagan God, and this pagan God, and all of the prophets who are pleading and exhorting their pagan God to show their power. There's silence, there's nothing. Elijah gets up, God shows up in a consuming fire, showing there's one God, there is one controller of the keys to the kingdom. In the life of Jesus, we see it play out. In the life of Jesus, we see Jesus calm the storm. Remember, he's asleep under the boat. Storms, crazy. I mean, these are fishermen, and they are scared out of their minds. They go and wake him up. We're doomed. We're doomed. We're going down. And, and Jesus goes up and just calms the storm, and the disciples, fear of the Lord comes over them, and they, this Jesus, creation, obeys him. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus arrives um, at the shore of the Gerasenes, and there's a demon-possessed man who shows up. Right, a demon-possessed man full of demons, and those demons come and they submit themselves to Jesus. They give, you are God, you are the one, you are the son of God. They give him credit, they beg for mercy to Jesus, these demons do. They don't say, okay, here we go, it's a fight. They say, and they ask for permission from Jesus. Would you please send us somewhere else? Would you have mercy on us? Would they need permission from, from Jesus? God's power is always greater, it's always stronger in the most difficult problems, the most overwhelming circumstances, the biggest spiritual attacks, the most intense persecution. We have a God whose strength and power is stronger. He's strong enough. He can set captives free. He can bring life from death. He's omnipotent. So why sometimes when we pray earnestly, do we still experience agonizing defeats? Am I doing something wrong? Are you? Should we read this story and, and assume the other side and assume, well, if I, um, if, I, if I name my wish before God earnestly with faith, well then, well, then I should always be entitled to claim whatever wish I wanted? Are we in to, to interpret this story in that way? Name and claim, um, that, that is a certain theology of prayer that some people hold. Is it true? Are we missing a formula here that we should just be able to name and, and then claim always God's power when I want? I want to pause from our story in Acts 12 for six minutes, and I want us to unpack this theological tension. 
right? This theological tension of is why would God be absent? Am I doing something wrong? What's at play here? And then we'll finish our story and we'll apply rightly, uh, hopefully, some of the, the truths that we can have right expectations for God. Um, through Scripture, through Scripture, we see two options as to how God responds to faithful people who are earnestly praying for God to move. He, God responds throughout Scripture in one of two ways. He either does or he doesn't, right? That's what happens. He does, right? There are so many stories in the Bible. Church, there are so many stories in the Bible of God answering prayer. I've already, I've already alluded to a lot of them, right? Acts 12, this is one, one huge one. Right? It's one of the first big ones in the book of Acts where we see the church rally in prayer and God says, yes, now I'm, I'm going to move, right? We see it in Exodus um, as people cry out to, to be removed from slavery, um, we see it, Paul in 2 Corinthians, he, he even kind of gives credit. He says, man, it is your praying that's activating uh, this, this blessing from God in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So many times, God's people ask boldly, in faith, earnestly, God moves in power. Be encouraged. So many times we pray boldly and he moves because of that. He chooses to use our prayers and move in miraculous, incredible ways. Be encouraged the power of prayer. What about the times when he doesn't, though? Right? What about the times when faithful people pray and he doesn't? Hebrews chapter 11 has a whole list of people who, who even the author of Hebrews says they were faithful and they never got to see on this side of eternity the promise that they, that they wanted to see. Jesus in the garden in Luke 22, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Jesus goes to the cross. We see a God who has the power to deliver us from suffering. We see a God who so often does. Don't miss that. But we also see a God in the Bible, a God who allows faithful people to remain in suffering, even though they're praying earnestly. They're, they're doing it the right way. Name and claim entitlement doesn't fit in the story of Scripture, right? This idea, doesn't, it doesn't fit in the story that God has given us and the truth that God has given us. This idea to just name and claim, if, if you're not getting what you want, if you're not getting the results, that's not necessarily your fault. So that doesn't fit. But what about, what about an unkind God who keeps good things from good people? Does that fit the story of Scripture? Why are there times when there's earnest prayers that are offered up to God, the squeeze and the trials they're experiencing don't stop, they continue? We find three reasons, three, re three whys to why God would allow that to still happen. There's, there's three big camps of why in Scripture. One is because of the consequences of sin. Right? There are times when, when suffering continues, when trials, when squeeze happens because because of the consequences of sin, right? The Israelites, they get out of Egypt, but then they, they never make it. That generation never makes it into the promised land because of their disobedience. And they even say, we want to, but, but their disobedience, they're worshiping other gods, they're grumbling, they don't ever get to do that. Ananias and Sapphira, we studied earlier in the book of Acts, right? Their persecution and ultimately death was tied to the consequences of them trying to deceive God. So we have to make room for a category of why that there are times where suffering and hard things happen and even when earnest prayers are offered up, there's consequences to sin. We have to understand that that's a category. But there's a second category and that is for our sanctification. We see times in Scripture 
where good, godly, faithful people are praying earnestly and God continues to allow them to go through hard things, to feel the squeeze, to, to, to be in trials because he's sanctifying, he's purifying them. Right? James 1 even commands us to count it all joy when we face those trials because God's doing something there. He's chiseling us, he's building character, he, he's shaping us in ways that, that he understands how and why for our lives to tell a story that ultimately brings glory to God. And so we have this category that we face trials, maybe not because there's sin in your life, but maybe because God is chiseling and doing something in your life. But here's the third category we see. Um, it's a God that allows suffering and we won't be able to fully understand why this side of eternity. We're left with a third category in scripture that's just, I don't know. Is, is it sin? No, it's not because of sin. Is it because God is you know, sanctifying, he has a lesson for us to learn? No, there's just this third category we see multiple times. One of the most famous is in the book of Job, right? Job is a mascot for just trials and persecution and having a rough go at it, right? God allows Job to go, to, to experience just about as much loss as you can experience in just some awful ways. And God allows this to happen in Job's life. And Job is trying to figure out why. Is it sin in my life? Did I do something wrong? He's seeking wise counsel or he thinks is wise counsel. Are you trying to teach me a lesson here? God, what are you doing? And, and God finally, I think, so compassionately answers him. Right? He compassionately answers him in Job 38, chapter 38 through 41. God answers Job as to the why he's going through what he's going. And it's four chapters. It's four chapters of him sharing with Job. Job, I have a perspective that you don't have. Job, this isn't sin. This isn't, this isn't a sanctification. This is, I have a perspective that you don't have. And on this side of eternity, you're not going to see what I see. Right, he, he goes into this four-chapter monologue of, Job, where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Job, where were you when I, when I set the depths of the ocean? Where were you when I brought forth creation? Where were you when I placed the stars in the sky? Job, I have a bigger perspective than you do. Which ultimately leads to this confession of Job, yes, and I trust you. I don't know why. I don't know if I'm going to get an answer to why on this side of eternity, but God, I trust you. There is a category of our suffering when God doesn't answer the way that we want to, that we have to hold tension. God, is there sin? God, are you sanctifying? Or God, is this a mystery that I still lean into you and trust you, even not having the answers? And while we wait on this side of eternity, we trust and we keep praying. We don't give up praying. We keep praying. Look, we pray because we want results, right? That's why we pray. We want God to do or move or show up in a, a friend's life or provide in some way. We pray in faith, believing that he can. But when the results don't come how we want, we ask this why question. And in doing that, right, we can, we can begin to align our expectations when asking a healthy why and understanding biblically what, what category it might be. And we can start to align our expectations and even make some adjustments ourselves. Right, I want to finish our story in Acts 12. And I want you to see the expectations that the prayer team for Peter, when they were squeezed, what they had or really what they didn't. And then we're going we're gonna to walk out with three steps, three, three things that we can really, um, that we can control, that we can step into. 
um, as application. So look back at verse 12 through verse 19. We'll finish out this story here. It says, when he realized this, Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda Rhoda, came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, "You're, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel, right? A reference of kind of this Jewish philosophy, this, this kind of historical thing that maybe they thought this was a ghost. And so they're like, no, it can't be him. It's got to be an, an angel or a ghost of Peter, right? But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened it, they saw him and were amazed. But, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, right? James, the brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle of James, and to the brothers, share this news, testify to what God's done. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. First off, tune in next week, and we're going to look more at what happens in this showdown in Caesarea between Herod and the Lord. But for today, I want us to see this one big observation here, right? Peter goes, knocks on the door of the prayer meeting while they're praying, nonstop, praying, God, save him, God, would you set him free? God, would you set him free? Knock, knock, knock. They don't even answer it. They don't even answer it because they just think, no, God can't answer that prayer. That, I mean, they didn't even expect God to answer that prayer in that way. How, how funny, they leave him outside and then they argue whether or not it could really be Peter. Acts 12 is this watershed moment in, in the church, right? We've seen prayer in the early church through the last 11 chapters, but not quite how it enters the room here, the scene here. God's people pray fervently, earnestly. This huge miracle happens They pray consistently and boldly, and God acts, and God saves Peter. I want us to leave here with a few things. A few things from God's word. One, my hope and and prayer this week has been that we see God's power as unmatched, that you see God's power as unmatched, right? Time and time again, it's unleashed through earnest prayer, but also that God tells us to pray, and story after story is documented in the scriptures to bolster our faith. That God uses prayer and he acts upon the prayer, the fervent and faithful prayer of of his people. And that we're called to pray expectantly. We we leave here stirred to pray expectantly, to pray in faith. And there's there's many elements of the results of my prayers that we discussed that I can't control. I pray fervently, but there's things that I, I can't control the outcome and the results. And things that we can't control... I don't like. I don't like that. I don't like that I can't control them. But that's the reality. God is not a vending machine where I type in the right formula and I get what I want. I don't always get what I want and what I ask for. Here here are three steps that I hope really we can walk away with that are in our control. I, I can't always, I can't control what God is going to do. I can pray boldly. But what can I do? These three things. The first is this. Align your lifestyle to his way. Right? That, that's something that I can control. I can look at my lifestyle. And I might not be able to answer how, I might not be able to, 
to really control how God answers my prayers, but I can evaluate and control. Is my life obedient to God's commands? Right? Is there sin? Is there disobedience in my life that's robbing me, that's dishonoring the Lord? Peter, I mean, he experienced this in the prison cell. He saw God's faithfulness in, in his epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Look what, look what Peter says, and he's quoting an Old Testament reference, but look how he brings to his people. He says in verse 11, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Listen, if I'm trying to evaluate and determine what I can expect from my fervent prayers, I need to start with evaluating, is there unrepentant sin in my lifestyle? And for you, not simply because God is a genie in the sky and I, he, he works on some karma-based system that I've got to keep the scales t- tilted in my favor, but, but because our God takes holiness and righteousness seriously. One, because he is worthy of holiness and righteousness but also because that is where the fruit of the Spirit in my life is better as I pursue righteousness and holiness, submitting to his way, submitting to his Spirit, bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace and these things when I do submit to God's way. So what in your life do you need to confess? Right? What in your life, what patterns of sin do you need to walk away from as you try to enter into fervent prayer for whatever it is that you are are praying for, if you're focused on what God has not done in response to your asking, have you lost focus on what you are not doing? Have we lost focus because we're so consumed with, God, I need you to do this, and we're not looking at ourselves and the sin in our life? Would the Holy Spirit pause us and out of his graciousness convict us? But also this, align your desires to his will. So I, I want to align my lifestyle to his command, but I also want to align my desires to his will. Let's say I'm living as a righteous of a life as I, as I can, right? I'm walking God's way. When I make a mistake, I'm quick to repent. I'm, I'm quick to confess it. I'm praying fervently and earnestly for something in my life. Is my desire for the request before the Lord in line with God's will? The Texas lottery. The Texas lottery is up to, I think, 1.55 gazillion dollars this next week, Right? Well, let's say God has the power to do the miraculous. Maybe I want that, right? right? You, want the, you have the power to give me $1.55 gazillion so, so I could constantly pray, and yet there's pretty, pretty good chances that there's going to be this constant stream of unmet expectations in my prayers for, for that desire of my heart to, to receive that because maybe that's not God's desire and his will for my life to be a gazillionaire. Right? Maybe more practically, um, there are prayer requests that you're making that aren't bad things in your life. They're, they're good things. They're things that God says are good, and they're things that you are praying for now. Things you've been praying for forever, waiting on an answer, checking, is it sin in my life? Is it, are you trying to teach me a lesson? God, would you, would, would you do this thing? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's the restoration of a relationship. Maybe it's Maybe it's sickness being lifted. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's for somebody else. We see the Apostle 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about this thorn in his flesh. And in, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, he asks multiple times, God, would you take this? God, would you take this? God, would you remove this? And, and he even realizes that it wasn't God's will to remove that. And he, he finds peace with it. And he says, God is shaping me and using that and, and finds peace with this. Paul doesn't let his unmet expectations pollute his view of God, right? God's character is not on trial. God's character is not on trial. His character is definitionally good. It is untethered to our circumstances. And and sometimes our circumstances make make that hard to believe. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the faith. God, you are good even when what I'm receiving is not. Even what I'm not getting freed from is, is not good, but you are still good. I trust. I want that. I, I want not the desires I have for my life. I want to want the desires he has. So, Lord, would you align my will to yours? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it shows us the exercise of faith, right? It shows us what it looks like. It challenges us in Proverbs 3. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. What I want, what I think I need, what is, what is good, lean on Not my own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. You will will steer my will. You will steer my path. God, would I not lean on my own understanding, but lean on you? Do you trust him? Are there areas of your faith that you don't have to resign praying about, right? But you can lean not on your own understanding and trust. If he doesn't give you what you ask for, even a good thing, you'll acknowledge to him that his will is still good. Right? Don't hear this challenge. Don't hear this challenge as stopping to ask for bold things. Ask for bold things. Ask, pray radical prayers to God in faith. But layer onto your request the alignment to say, God, would you align my will with your will? Not on my own understanding. And that is so much easier to do with this third, this third thing, and this is the final thing. Align your hope to his son. Right, that alignment to his will, even when it's not my will, even when I have a hard time admitting that's not what I want, God. That's not even what you designed, God. But when I align my hope to his son, it puts in perspective everything. Here's what I mean by that. Am I putting more hope in the request I ask before the Lord more than the relationship with the Lord? First Peter, he says this. He says, in this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Peter knows you're going to get squeezed. You're going to be in tough spots. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's what Peter's saying. Are you grieved by trials? But with a life of praise and glory because of the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls is not about an eternal place, heaven. It's about an eternal person, Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what obtaining faith and salvation means. Our, our expectations are often off because we're more, focused, we're more focused on the problem we want solved than the person who holds all things together in his power and his mighty and 
mightiness and, and that person being Jesus Christ who is our satisfaction. And yet I become blinded by God. I want this circumstance changed and I lose sight of the person who is my satisfaction designed to be for all eternity. I think, it, I think at times we think of heaven as the goal. Right? Heaven is where the circumstances of my existence are way easier, right? I'm filled with good. There's no bad. But this salvation is not about me getting to a perfect place. It's about me knowing and being in deep relationship with the perfect creator and king and father. That's what our salvation is for. For all eternity to get to be in heaven because we worship and in the new earth worship and make, make much of this God. So no matter where you are in your prayer journey, right? No matter where you are in this walk and feeling squeezed and feeling unanswered prayers or, or hurt or frustration or praying for someone else and not seeing the fruit that you want to, for any number of hard things, I might not know when or if God is going to move the way I'd like to, but I do have him through Christ. I do know that he seeks to be found I do know that his word won't return void. I know that I can spend every day, regardless of any unmet expectations in my life, I can spend every day aligning him, aligning with Christ Jesus as my prize, my hope in him. Not all my prayers answered, I can press on in my weakness to the one who gives strength to those who are weak. In good seasons and bad, if you have Christ, then you have hope. And if you don't have Christ, if you don't have Christ, praise God that you are here. What are you waiting for? He stands at the door and knocks and says, will you let me in? I am better than your circumstances. I am the God who you were designed to be in relationship with. Through Christ, you can have that. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we love you for how you love us, God. You're so gracious and kind and generous to us. God, we see the church come alive with prayer when they're squeezed. Lord, when we are under trial, when we are hurting, when we are lonely, would our instinct be to go to you? Would you meet us in those places, not always with the answers we want, but with the Savior we need? We pray all this in his holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.